The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture this morning is from Romans. We're going to start in chapter 1. If you're using the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 883. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And let's turn to, to chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. This is on page 891. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you'll want to uh, keep your finger there in Romans chapter 1. This is where we're going to uh, find ourselves here in a few moments. So if you remember, we started a new sermon series, and we're going to be working through what does it mean for us to be an everyday disciple, a follower of Jesus who admittedly walks in everyday life. Um, We're all average in this sense. There's nothing extraordinary about us. We're all pursuers of Jesus. We have jobs, we have homes, we have families, we have neighbors. And so what does it look like for us to be people who pursue Jesus in, in everyday life as, as everyday disciples? As you're going to hear in a couple of minutes, what we're going to be doing is looking at the scriptures and we're going to boil it down to five key gospel-shaped identities. What we're going to do is let the scriptures inform us on what we are like, what identities do we have in light of being men and women who've been saved by grace. And this morning, what we're going to do is concentrate on this identity of a worshiper. So our sermon title this morning is this, I am a worshiper. And the main idea that we want you to walk away with this morning is this, is that a worshiper lives to glorify the Father. And they live to glorify the Father by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So it's the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross 
in his crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that now lives inside men and women who've been born again, who've been saved by their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. What is the attitude that defines someone like this? It'll be the attitude of worship and the worship that drives them to live their life to glorify God the Father and all that they do, okay? So we're going to lay this out before us this morning as we look at Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12. I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to move through the teaching, the preaching of his word. If we all just gathered here this morning just to hear a man talk, we've all wasted our time. The point isn't just to take the next several minutes to hear me say some things. We have gathered here this morning because we are convinced from the scriptures that God loves to empower the proclamation of his word and by his power our hearts can be pierced, our minds can be changed, salvation can come to sinners who need to be saved. So let's ask God to do this. Let's lean on that promise and just lift that promise in prayer right back to God and then we'll go forward in our word time in the word this morning, okay? So let's pray. Father, I'm asking you to do what only you can do, which is to empower this time through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts, turn our minds, to see our need for Jesus from, from these verses that we're going to, to study here in a few moments. The temptation to come before the scriptures is this, to say this is an epic waste of time. These words are ancient and foolish for our day, and they have nothing to do with me. So I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would debunk those three temptations in our hearts and in our minds right now and help us to see ourselves in the text this morning. Open our eyes to see our need for Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, this morning. Open our minds to understand how the words from Scripture that we're going to study here apply directly to me. Not to all those other people out there, not those other people in the, in the row with me, but they apply to me. They apply to the man, to the woman in the mirror. So God, do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. So if you remember last week, what we did was we began this sermon series by going into Jeremiah chapter 17. And in that chapter, we saw Jeremiah use a metaphor. He picked up the language of a desert shrub and he picked up the language of a fruitful green tree. And he used that metaphor and contrasted those two realities to teach us something about thriving in the heat of daily life, recognizing that as everyday disciples, as we go about our lives, we find ourselves on the receiving end of living in a Genesis chapter 3 world. And what the prophet revealed was that while both the desert shrub and the fruitful tree, while both of those things experienced the heat of life, one was a picture of unhealthy surviving, while the other was a picture of healthy, thriving, even in the heat of life. 
And so seeing this as a God-given picture to evaluate ourselves, to measure ourselves against the standard of Scripture, what we did was we drew the conclusion that it is possible for everyday disciples to thrive in the heat of life. So the question for us then this morning as we continue to move forward in this sermon series comes down to this. Well, how can I know whether I'm thriving or surviving as an everyday disciple? You see, we made a statement of fact last week that it is possible to be an everyday disciple who experiences the crucible of daily living and not just know surviving, but to know thriving. So the question you should be asking yourself is, if that is the measure, if that's the biblical standard, how can I know if my life is moving along a trajectory toward that thriving that the scriptures says is possible? How can I know whether I'm thriving or surviving as an everyday disciple? As I move along this trajectory of belief in Christ to maturity in Christ, what marks of thriving should I see in my life? That's the question that's going to hang over us for the next five parts of this sermon series. The answer from the scriptures is this, that a thriving, spirit-empowered, Christ-abiding, God-glorifying, everyday disciple is going to be marked by growing maturity in five gospel-shaped identities. Five of them. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. So a follower who pursues Christ out of the overflow of the grace they have received, pursues Christ in word and in prayer, An everyday disciple who anchors themselves in a Jesus family, so they see themselves as part of a family. Maturing as servants of others, recognizing that it was Jesus Christ himself who said, I did not come to be served, but to give my life in service to others, to give my life as a ransom for many. And to again recognize that because we are in Christ, We want to pursue Christ-likeness, and we pursue that by recognizing we are a servant to others just as Christ was a servant to others. Bearing witness to Christ, that fourth identity, all while recognizing that we are called to live as worshipers of Christ. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to begin by giving legs to this worshiper identity by recognizing that first, I am made to worship. You are made to worship. We were created by God to be worshipers. Thriving everyday disciples are worshipers, and worshipers live to glorify God. The Apostle Paul confirms this truth in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says this, listen, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So male and female, created in the image of God, every one of us were made to glorify our creator. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 through 7, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God created us for his glory. He says, bring my sons from afar, bring my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, says God. 
God made all of us in his own image so that we could reflect him to the praise of his glory in our everyday lives. Therefore, every human being should live for the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you're like, and you're just asking the question, like, I don't know why I exist. Like, I don't know my purpose in life. Like, what have I been called to do? Why do I get up in the morning? Why do I go to work? Why am I part of a family? Why am I running and pursuing after all of these things? What is the purpose of my life? The scriptures will boil an answer down to that question through the lens of worship by saying this, God has created you for this purpose, to live for his glory. And by continually asking ourselves the question, how can I bring glory to the God who made me, this question and pursuing an answer to this question What we'll find out is that one way our worship of God is put into action is by just simply beginning to ask that question. Like, what does it look like for me to pursue God with a worshiping heart every moment of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year that God has given to me? So from the mundane task of consuming daily sustenance to whatever else you may do, The scriptures say that the overarching reality is that you and I were created to do it all to the glory of God. But here's the plain truth. The plain truth is that you and I do not come into this world living this way. We do not enter into this world with a heart bent to enjoy this reality. Instead, hearts ready and willing to do all up to the glory of God, we are born and come into this world ready and willing to rob God of his glory. And at least one result of our glory robbing is that our worshiping hearts are bent toward false worship. That's what we read and that's what we read about in Romans chapter 1. Listen, this morning, everyone, everyone here is worshiping something. All of our hearts are constantly kicked into gear, pursuing something in the form of worship. There's no neutral hearts of worship. We are natural-born worshipers, created to worship, whether it is an object that we worship, whether it's other people that we worship, whether it's things like material goods, money, whether it's things like comfort, whether it's the approval of others, or whether it's the person in the mirror There is some level of our hearts constantly being bent away from giving glory to God by worshiping him or robbing glory from God by worshiping lesser things. You see, it's not a matter of if I am a worshiper, but it's a matter of what am I worshiping. And when the object of our worship is no longer the God worthy of all worship, we are guilty of false worship. And the Bible clearly states that this glory-robbing heart of false worship is sin. The Apostle Paul drives this truth home in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So notice in that verse, what he's doing is he's tying this idea of worshiping God in a proper way that gives him glory and saying that when we rob God of that glory by worshiping things not of him, he runs this idea of sin that encompasses all people through this grid of worship. That's what he's doing there when he says, all have sinned. Well, describe for me, Paul, what do you mean all have sinned? And he says, well, let's just think about it in the realm of worship. You do not live in such a way naturally coming out of the womb where you say, I want to give God glory for every single thing in my life. He says, we know we are sinners because we come out of the womb with a heart that says, I want to rob God of his glory in every single area of my life. And I actually want to give myself the glory. So in saying this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the apostle Paul encapsulates the sin of all humanity by calling out our worship-robbing failure to glorify God as we ought to glorify him. Again, God has created us to be worshipers. And our worship is to be centered on him alone. But because of sin, our worship is no longer turned upward, but our worship is turned inward upon itself. The source of our glory-robbing heart finds its beginning in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were made to extol their creator. They were made to exalt his name. They were made to enjoy God with their entire being. But then came that moment in Genesis chapter 3 where they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the moment they believed the serpentine lie that God cannot be trusted, that God does not have good in store for you, that God is actually trying to trick you and rob you in this moment, Adam and Eve's sin of rebellion corrupted everything. In that moment, Adam and Eve's worship was redirected from true glory-giving worship of the Creator to false glory-robbing worship of the creation. Take this idea, fast forward into the New Testament, and you walk through the door of Romans chapter 1, and what you find is that the Apostle Paul summarizes all of this in the verses that Meredith just read for us this morning. Where in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul connects these two streams of God's glory and false worship together. So look at what he writes. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Well, how has God shown it to them? He says in verse 20, His, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when people see the way that God has created the world, they are without excuse. What he's saying here is, as creatures, people who have been created, 
we ought to be able to look at creation and say there is a creator. But the natural bent of our glory-robbing hearts is to suppress that truth, to look at creation and say there is no God and actually flip worship upside down and begin to rob the worship that is worthy of being given to God and begin to worship the things that God has created. He's going to say that here in the next couple of verses. He continues in verse 21. For although they knew God, here's, the, here's worship language, they did not honor him as God. To not honor God as God To not give thanks to God is to rob God of glory. It's to rob him of worship. So what was the result? Well, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Notice the glory language here. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God, here it is, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, here's the worship language, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So there's two great exchanges. We exchange the glory of the immortal God And as we exchange the glory of the immortal God, ultimately exchanging the truth about God for a lie, he encapsulates this reality in the language of worship and says to rob God of the glory, exchanging truth for a lie, our worshiping hearts don't just go into neutral and begin to worship nothing. Our worshiping hearts go from glory giving to glory robbing to then beginning to worship things that were created by God. You see, one of the ways to describe the universal plight of humanity is to do so through the lens of worship, through worship. Sin is this plight, and it's a universal problem that compels and propels men and women to worship falsely. This is why sin must be destroyed. Hearts dead in sin are bent away from true worship to false worship, revealing just how desperately bad the situation of our heart truly, truly is. But the good news of God is that he has demonstrated his power to be able to change these false worshiping hearts into true worshiping hearts. What we need is someone who can transform us from the inside out. Someone who can convert our glory-robbing hearts into glory-giving hearts. Someone who can turn our false worship into true worship. And according to the scriptures, the single person who's proved his power by dying on a cross and resurrecting from the grave to exercise the kind of power that it takes to change us from the inside out, to save us from the inside out, to convert our glory robbing into glory giving is the man, Jesus Christ, the God man. For through the work which the Son accomplished at the cross, false worship can be changed into true worship. And that's where you get Romans chapter 12. Remember what we said at the beginning. Thriving everyday disciples 
are worshipers. They are worshipers who live to glorify the Father by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So when someone repents of their sin and believes in the Son for eternal life, this person is now a new creation. They're a new creation. Their old glory-robbing heart of false worship has passed away, and a new glory-giving heart made for true worship has come, and it's all been accomplished by the work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. The cross is the great evidence of God's love for us, and experiencing this love is what compels and propels, moves us to worship the one who saved us. And so now, through the work of the Son, the Scriptures say the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in every person who has been born again, and now empowered by the Spirit, guess what? It's, it's possible to live out Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's now possible, empowered by the Spirit, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's worship language. Holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. That's worship language. By the Spirit's power, it is now possible to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing we can actually now discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Our worshiping hearts have been changed by the work of the Son, empowered by the Spirit. It is now possible for every one of us here this morning who know Christ as our Lord and Savior to live in a way where true worship is what we know, what we enjoy, and what we pursue. It is possible, not because you have been awesome at doing this in your own strength, but because of the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son, you can bring glory to the Father with a heart truly, truly worshiping. So just think about this. Just think about this. What, what this means for an everyday disciple. So with the full weight of our Trinitarian God leveraged on our behalf. So think of a sentence. Glory to God, powered by the Spirit, through the work of the Son. That's the Trinity right there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So now, with the full weight of our Trinitarian God leveraged on our behalf, you and I can thrive in our worship, even in the heat of daily life. Why? Because the heat of daily life does not throw off the power of the Holy Spirit in you that empowers you to pursue God, to bring him glory when the heat of daily life lands on you. We can walk in a way that is marked by thriving in our worship, not because we are so great, but because all of our failed efforts in misdirected worship have been taken up in Jesus, paid for by his blood and forgiven. We can walk as thriving worshipers not because we worship perfectly, as we all know far too well, but because even when our worship falters in the crucible of daily living, last year, 2020 scorched some of us in the realm of our identity as worshipers, and we found our hearts bent towards things that ought not to have been worshiped. Some of us faltered stumbled and failed in this area of worship because the crucible of daily living. But even when our worship falters 
in the crucible of daily living, we have a 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 promise. And it's this promise. That as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to the next. So if 2020 revealed a worshiping heart in you that looked more like a barely surviving desert shrub and less like a thriving green tree, what are you going to do about it? Right? Maybe that's what's going on right now. You're like, man, 2020 revealed my heart was bent towards things in a worshiping manner that ought not to have been the center of my worship. And God is revealing that to you, continues to reveal that to you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the fact that God in his goodness has revealed this about your worshiping heart? Because it's a good thing that he's exposing your heart in this way. It's not a bad thing. He loves you. The Father is for you. He's not against you. He knows what you were created for, and that is to bring glory and worship and honor to him and him alone. And so he loves you enough to expose those areas of your lives where your heart was bringing worship to that which ought not to have been worshipped and thus robbing him of the worship he is worthy to receive. So what are you going to do about this? May I suggest this? May I suggest you do what we just read from 2 Corinthians. That is, ask God by the power of the Spirit to help you behold the glory of the Lord. Right? If in those moments of false worship, it's a glory worship issue, and we are robbing God of glory by bringing worship and giving glory to something else, ask God to enact and work and move on his promise that as we behold the glory of the Lord, our hearts will be transformed and conformed into the likeness of the Lord of glory. That's the promise of 2 Corinthians 3. So all we're doing is saying, God, remember when you said that as I behold the glory of the Lord, I will be transformed and continue to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Christ, I'm telling you, that is the desire of my heart. My worshiping heart, the desire of my worshiping heart is I want to bring you the glory that you are worthy to receive. I understand that I am prone to behold things and bring glory to things that are not you. So, Father, by the power of the Spirit, will you help me behold the glory of the Lord? Why do we pray this way? Because of this truth. We will become what we behold. We will become what we behold. So in those moments where we're tempted in our worshiping hearts to no longer behold the Lord of glory, but begin to behold lesser things, hoping that they will be our sort of functional saviors, it should be no surprise that our hearts will begin to want to bring glory to them, worship them. So in those moments when we feel our heart being tempted to go rob, give, Say, God, will you help me to find that joy and satisfaction that will say, Rob, give. Because I'm beholding the glory of the Lord. Ask the Father. Ask the Father to direct your worshiping heart to behold the Lord of glory 
in that very moment. And then what do you do? You rest. You rest. You rest in the fact that through the work of Jesus on the cross, he has transformed you into a true worshiper. You rest in the fact that the heart of Christ is for you. The heart of Christ is not against you. So you lean on him and his absolute ability ability to make every breath a hallelujah and your every exhale an amen of true worship. So let me wrap up this morning like this. What, what, What does this mean? Some of you, hopefully, are thinking this question. Yeah, 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 great, 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 great. Yeah, this is what we're supposed to say. This is the kind of stuff that a guy like me is supposed to be saying on a Sunday morning, right? Like, I got work tomorrow. I got actual life, right? I got college. I got classes. I've got friends. I've got travels. I've got friends. I've got neighbors. I've got coworkers. I've got problems. I've got the heat of daily life. Yeah, yeah, good for a Sunday morning pastor who's supposed to say these things on a Sunday morning, but like, What about the other six days and 22 hours that lie ahead of me beyond these two hours that we spend together? I want to say something about this. By pointing out what this worshiping heart, this true worshiping heart reality, what this could look like for us as thriving everyday worshipers. It begins by seeing that our everyday lives are lives of continuing worship. We need to battle the concept that I only slip into worship mode from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on a Sunday morning. Our lives are lives of continuing worship, and our continuing worship now has two contexts, each shaped by the other. So not only do we worship when we gather with God's people in community for two hours on a Sunday morning, but we also worship scattered as God's people in the world for the other six days and 22 hours that we're not together. And it's our gospel-shaped gatherings on a Sunday morning that give us a model for how we can go about worshiping in the way we were created to worship the other six days and 22 hours when we're scattered. See, whether you realize this or not, with intentionality, your pastors have based the order of our Sunday morning gatherings on the story of the gospel. What is the story of the gospel? For any of us who've been bumming around in CG here for the past several weeks, what you should know is this, is that we can summarize the gospel with these four key terms. God, man, Christ, and... Response. All right, man, some people are paying attention here. I like this. It's good. God, man, Christ, response. So what you need to know is when we gather on a Sunday morning, we intentionally rehearse the gospel from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. every single Sunday. When we gather, we begin with a call to worship, to remind ourselves that our God is holy, our God has spoken, and we've been called to respond to him. There's God. Because man is sinful, we make corporate confession of our sin in direct response to the holiness of God. So that time of confession when we come together, it's not just something religious people are supposed to do because it's Sunday. What we're saying is, God, you are holy. Man is sinful, the opposite of holy. 
And so when we come together and Pastor Tom says, stand, we're going to turn our attention to God. We're going to see he is holy. We're going to see he can have nothing to do with sin. We're going to see that he is worthy of all of our worship. Let's look to the scriptures and let the scriptures remind us of this. We're going to sing a song. We're going to have a piece of scripture that point us to that. We eventually come to the point of confession. We don't do that prayer of confession just because we need to kill a couple of minutes and fill up Sunday morning. We do that so we can corporately hear ourselves going, yes, in light of who God is. I am confessing that I failed to meet that mark. I am a man who is sinful. I am a woman who is sinful. And we need to hear one another corporately confessing this because when we see who God is in our call to worship and we corporately confess our need for a Savior, it naturally brings us to that place where in our word of assurance, we call each other to remember the goodness of grace, the mercy of mercy, the beauty of a Savior who condescended, came to a cross, was crucified and resurrected so that the works of the devil might be defeated, victory over Satan, sin, and death could be accomplished, and that we can remind ourselves that we have a Savior who delights to save sinners. So now the word of assurance isn't just another religious thing we do on Sunday morning. It's a key movement of reminding ourselves of the gospel. So then what we do is we have a pastoral prayer where we pray to Jesus. We have a time of preaching where we preach Jesus because God, man, Christ is to be at the center of it all. And then we call for a response of obedience in the Lord's Supper. We call for a response of obedience with the exhortation. Remember, your disciples go out, make, mature, multiply, And then we close out with a benediction, fancy old school word that actually means good word. We want to end on a good word of Jesus. And then we leave. That's two hours on a Sunday morning. A gospel-shaped liturgy. God, man, Christ response. Now here's the thing. This gospel-shaped liturgy is not just only for your Sunday morning. The temptation every one of us face is the temptation to compartmentalize our lives of worship to this two hours on a Sunday morning block of time. But thriving everyday disciples fight this temptation to compartmentalize with the awareness that our every moment, every waking moment is an opportunity to worship our Lord of glory. So you get up tomorrow morning, begin with a call to worship. How do you begin with a call to worship? As most of us are sipping our cup of coffee, it can look like this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the what? Glory of God. So you're going to sit there and you're going to have that cup of nice black, smell good, taste good cup of coffee there. And what you're going to do is you're going to say, God, I am so thankful that you created the heavens and the earth to have a son and that son shone on some hill somewhere in this world that you made and that son landed on some coffee bean plant somewhere that made that plant grow, give forth a bean. Somebody was empowered by work with the body you created to harvest that bean and roast that bean and get that bean into my cup this morning. Now, either you're like, that is insane. Like you're telling me I'm supposed to worship Jesus or a cup of coffee? That is stupid. Or you can just remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink. Now all of a sudden, breakfast isn't just that thing you do like this every morning. 
you know, barely, barely making it as you zombie your way around the kitchen and just shove some food in your face before you stumble out the door to work. Or your morning routine is all now of a sudden a call to worship. Hey, you have another day that's just been given to you that you weren't guaranteed by God. Are you going to rob God of the glory of that, or are you going to look to God and say, amen, hallelujah, thank you for this thing that you've provided? The morning commute to work is a call to confession. Ever been impatient and frustrated on your morning commute to work? Ever sinned against anybody as you're cruising down I-55, wrapping around Springfield, feeling like you want to give the Hawaiian hello to somebody because they cut you off? Tom? (laughs) Amen, that's exactly right. So what if instead of that morning commute becoming an opportunity for just sin and launching the trajectory of your day off into uh, just crazy places, you recognize in that moment, ah, man, my heart, it's still prone to worship things falsely. It's prone to rob glory and to give glory. I don't want to give glory here. I want to rob it from here. I want to give it to their Lord, I confess. Because even though I have been redeemed by your grace, I'm still prone to want to sin. Nobody who's a Christian goes around thinking they never sin again. That's insanity. All of us who have been saved by grace still recognize the temptation to sin against God. So that is why we confess. Sunday morning gathered, now all of a sudden we have opportunities for confession. Is there an opportunity maybe to pray? Like during our pastoral prayer time for our broken world as you're cruising along through the streets of Springfield and you hear the morning news which is just completely showing a world that's crumbling in on itself. Either you hear that and you're like, ah, and you shake your fist, or how about we hear that and our hearts bend over in prayer. A conversation between spouses is now an opportunity to assure one another of our forgiveness, that's ours in Christ. Interactions with a coworker present moments to preach, proclaim, show, confess Jesus. And those last moments before a household goes to sleep are an occasion for benediction. You're putting the kiddos to bed. Why not close out with a benediction for the family? Lord, we're going to lay our heads down to sleep. Will you keep us through the night? Psalm 121, I think. You're the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Will you, will you keep watch over us as I have to slumber and sleep? It's in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Wake up on Tuesday. Rinse and repeat. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Two hours gathered together, sojourners, exiles along the pilgrim way, wearied by our progress through the world as everyday disciples. We pull into the gospel way station of a two-hour gathering. We call together, remember God, remember man, remember Christ, remember response. That's our hearts being fueled with the fuel of the gospel, the fuel of Christ, the fuel of grace and mercy so we can pull out of the waypoint station and roll right back into those six days and 22 hours and then go right on down, continuing to worship. That is how all of a sudden Sunday morning gatherings aren't just merely Sunday morning gatherings now, are they? It's just not the thing we are just called to do because that's just what religious Jesus-y kind of folk do. It is an all-of-life act of worship of an everyday disciple thriving on the gathering and the scattering of worship, seeing that there is an intricate dialogue between each other. And it's as an everyday disciple experiences this all-of-life worship 
that they will then begin to thrive as true worshipers, glorifying the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to the work of the Son. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking you to do only what you can do, which is to turn our hearts rightly to you even right now in this moment, as we're literally going to worship you in song. It's just not impossible right now to think that even right now, some of our worshiping hearts are bent more toward false worship than they are true worship right now. So God, do what you love to do, which is to change hearts. Bring us to the place where we respond, not with a spirit of works, feeling like we need to do something to be right with God, but recognize that Christ has already done everything that needs to be done, and we can respond to the grace and the mercy of salvation found in him. It's in the name of Christ I pray these things. Amen.